The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello. Welcome to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Today's episode was recorded live at Capital Weekly's Energy Forum on Wednesday, November 17th. This is the third panel of the day on the topic, the end of oil, question mark. Hello, my name is Tim Foster. I'm with Capital Weekly, and I want to welcome you to our final panel of today's Energy Forum. Uh, today's topic is the end of oil with a question mark. Uh, 2045 is right around the corner, and California has proposed a goal of being carbon neutral by that date. And this panel looks at how we get there without leaving people behind and uh I think we have an exceptional group of panelists to tackle that issue. And before we jump into the content, I did want to thank our sponsors. Capital Weekly is uh, published by a nonprofit called Open California, 501c3. And we could not do these events without the support of our underwriters. And I want to thank them for supporting today's program. And uh, first off, we have TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations, the Western States Petroleum Association. KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, California Building Industry Association, Lucas Public Affairs, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, Pandora, and finally, the California Professional Firefighters. And their support uh, enables us to put on programs like this. We do four of these uh, discussions a year, and uh, we're happy to do them, and we could not do them without the support of our underwriters. And with that, I'm going to turn you over to Julie Cart, who is with Cal Matters. She is a longtime journalist. Uh, as uh, we're proud to point out, she actually took home a Pulitzer Prize one year, which is uh, kind of stunning if you're in the journalism world. It doesn't really get better than that. So uh, she has been writing about environmental issues for many, many years, and we are very, very uh, excited to have her moderate this panel. Julie, thank you, and I'll turn it over to you. My pleasure, Tim. I thank everyone for participating online watching this, which is going to be a very provocative, uh, very informative uh, afternoon, I'm sure. And we're very, very lucky to have a panel that has this expertise um, and giving us their time. So thanks so much. Um, the panelists are Catherine Reheis Boyd, who is the president of the Western States Petroleum Association. It's uh, uh, a group for all of the industry or large, large producers, refiners and others. And is, she's very fluent in talking about these issues, as is Severin Bornstein, who is uh, at the director of the Energy Institute at Haas School of Business um, and knows all things energy. And we're also happy to have Alvaro Sanchez from the Greenlining Institute He's an urban planner. He has a particular interest in making sure that communities of color and uh, folks uh, who might be impacted by the kinds of things we're talking about are considered when we have these discussions. And Danny Cullenward is uh, the policy director at Carbon Plan. He has, um, he's dangerous twice because he's both an economist and a lawyer, so we to, we'll, we'll look to him for, for many things. Uh, this is an enormous topic, uh, the end of oil, what does carbon neutrality mean? And I think we should start just going to each of you asking, what does that mean to you? What will it look like? And we can, we can unpack all of that uh, as we move along. Um, but how would you define it? Um, Kath, why don't we start with you? 
Uh, thanks, Julian. I really appreciate uh, Open California and uh, Capital Weekly for this event. So, and uh, love seeing my fellow panelists who I haven't seen in a while. So that's always great. Um, but you know, the name of this panel is the End of Oil question mark, and I think it's with a question mark, frankly, for good reason. Um, and then I get it. Some people think that it is a way forward. Uh, uh, certainly, even our governor thinks that. <laughs> but um, I think it's a little disingenuous, from from my opinion, to have this conversation uh, without also asking ourselves, is eliminating oil truly the best path for us towards a sustainable environmental and economic future? So I think that's an even more important question for us to ask. And, and maybe the real question is here, you know, what does our society look like when we upend our energy supply via, frankly, bans and mandates that don't really look at much at innovation, investment, and working together, in my opinion. Okay, so if we are asking about the end of oil, I think we should also ask what it looks like when our government dictates how and when we can use energy and how and when we can travel and what it will look like for much of our society who frankly cannot afford or get access to the energy that we need today. Now, when we talk about the end of oil, we need to also talk about what that path looks like for real people. Because when we're looking ahead, really at 25 years away, we still have an obligation to meet the demand and supply that California consumers require. And those needs are today, they're tomorrow, and they're in the foreseeable future. And so we, we don't want to take steps that will just result in the increase of cost of living and don't get to the real challenges that I think we really want to talk about here. And two of those that I hope we get to are, you know, we've got cap and trade and low carbon fuel standard that expire in 2030. What are we thinking about that? Those were key elements in how we are going to really tackle these challenges. And even when 2035 comes and the governor has banned the sale of internal combustion engines, there's still going to be 35, 36 million cars and trucks on the road, and they're still going to need liquid fuel. And so even a recent CARB study that I was reading the other day said that um, low to moderate income households were really buying cars that are 11 years old with 88,000 miles and cost about $14,000. So they're going to be around a while as we're talking about this transition. So I don't think the end of oil exists in the foreseeable future. Do I think it's different? Absolutely. Is it different than today? Absolutely. What do I see exists? I see a diversified energy portfolio. I see an all of the above energy strategy. And I see a strategy that I hope we all can agree has to balance the environment, the economy, energy, and social justice as we go forward. So um, I want to really get into some of that because I think it's it's certainly a different mix of, you know, of course it will. It has been from the beginning of time and it will be as we go forward. And I know that we cannot do that accidentally. We have to do it intentionally. And those are discussions that really need to happen. And I'm excited about the technology and innovation that is occurring because the diversification of this industry is off the charts. I mean, they are truly energy companies. And when I, you know, I've been doing this 32 years for this organization and 40 years in the business. And when I see two refineries switching from fossil fuels to, um, you know, renewable diesel, uh, that's amazing, right? When I see energy companies te teaming up, our companies teaming up with Southwest Airlines to produce renewable aviation fuel, 
that's exciting. When I see renewable natural gas and hydrogen that we're investing in, when I see strapping on solar panels to you know, produce oil in, in, in the Central Valley, that's exciting. And I think CCS, uh, we all on this call can imagine that is probably one of the most exciting things that we want to talk about as we go forward as, as the best technology. Because for our industry, it's not the end of oil, but can I envision producing crude oil in the state of California in a carbon negative way? Yeah, I can. I can envision that. And it's through these innovations and solutions and technologies that's going to get us there. So are we really interested in reducing climate change? Or are we interested in eliminating an industry? Because I don't, I, don't, I don't prescribe to the second, but I do know that this industry is invested in the first part of that equation, which is how do we best get from here to there and can we please look at where we are today? Because that question never gets answered. And I know we want to look towards the future, but you got to know where you are today so we can plan how to get there. Yeah, that's a lot. Uh, Severin, I'm wondering if you might see things differently. Um, Kath t- touched on everything we're going to talk about, and it, it obviously is a deep um, subject. What, what's your definition? What do you see? Yeah, and I, I'll respond in part to what Kathy said. And uh, um I agree with her in some ways. Uh, I it, it does, though, I think, involve government mandates of some sort. Um, CO2 emissions are an externality. People are not going to, on their own, individually rein them in. We need government action to make that happen. So I think there is a question of whether you do that through bans or prices or um, cap and trade or... Uh, various goals. Um, and you can argue about that, but all of those are government policies and we need them. When I, when, you know, we sent, when this question got sent around, my first reaction was that the end of oil has to mean the end of the demand for oil, not the end of the supply of oil, because we can't run out of oil because by then we've burned, we've put way too much CO2 into the atmosphere. If we don't figure out how to, and I think politically and geopolitically, we're not going to reduce the usage of oil um, by squeezing the California or U.S. production, because we're not going to get cooperation from some pretty hostile areas that are major oil producers and depend on them. So we need to figure out how to reduce the demand for oil. And that means inventing the technologies to either actually stop burning oil or, and I'm not going to rule this out, though I'm skeptical, uh, burning it in a way that is climate friendly. Producing oil in a way that is negative, carbon negative is great, but it doesn't really solve the problem if the oil then gets burned and, and put CO2 out of p- tailpipes. So if that's possible, I wouldn't rule it out. Um, but if it's not possible, we do do need to massively reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And that's going to mean reducing the demand for fossil fuels. And that means really inventing the new technologies that's going to replace it. I fear that if we do this through uh, trying to squeeze supply, we also have equity implications. And here I'm completely on board, in, on board with uh, Kathy that... Um, we got to do this equitably. And one of the inequitable suggestions is we just reduce the supply and let the price go up. And people say, well, that's what you wanted anyway, a high price for fuel. And the answer is no. What we want is people not to use it. 
if we do it through a high price for fuel that generates revenue that can be recycled to the people who are harmed by it, that's one thing. But if we do it through a high price for fuel that is enriching Russia and the Saudi Arabian uh, uh, elite and so forth, um, that's, that's just an incredibly inequitable way to do it. So we need to figure out an equitable way to get off oil. Uh, and uh, that's going to involve reducing demand and inventing the technologies. And I have lots of other thoughts, but I will stop there rather than hog the microphone. <laughs> You're not hogging. Mm-hmm. Alvaro, I bet you're coming at it from that, that lens, this idea of equity and not undue burdens on, on communities and, and folks who are already uh, having a hard time. Um, how are you looking at this question? Yeah, um, well, thank you for, for having me. And um, similar to, I think, uh, you know, Severin started, when I saw the end of oil, I was really hoping that we're not getting to the point where we use it all up because then we're done uh, as a species. Uh, and I really kind of interpreted it as, you know, what the industry does, which is to extract the oil and to really harm our planet and our communities in order to make, you know, the profits that they need to make. Um, so when I think about this question and what it means to me, um, you know, really it means ending the use of oil and the demand of oil in order to produce healthy communities, to have a flourishing renewable energy economy, and saving off the worst impacts of global warming. And what this looks like is really the ability of communities, but particularly where poverty and pollution have been locked in, to live in environments that are free from air pollution and harmful fossil fuel supporting infrastructure that is, dam- that is damaging to human health. And we know that in these communities is where we see this infrastructure be um, located. We also, it also looks like an economic system that is powered by energy sources that are less polluting and extractive, that are finally able to flourish because fossil fuel interests are no longer able to leverage their political capital to delay the transition away from fossil fuels that are continuing to harm our planet and our communities. And it really looks like saving ourselves. Um, the planet is going to continue in one way or another, but us as human beings are probably not going to be in that future if we continue to burn fossil fuels at the rate that we're doing now. I think the science is really clear on that. And I think that, um, you know, we're going to have to figure out what to do in order to end the use of oil the way that we are and end the production of oil um, in order to avert what looks to be a pretty horrific future. And the time between now and then is going to be most felt in the communities that are already suffering from a lot of the injustices that our economic system has generated for them. So to me, this question is really about making a very um, hard pivot. Um, One that is not gonna be easy, one that's gonna be costly. But I think the reality is that we're already paying a high cost for our current economic system. So making the change is something that is necessary in order to save our, our way of life and, our, and, and the way that um, you know, we, we exist in this, in this planet. And you know, the signs are all over the place. We already see the impacts of climate change. So if we want more of what we have now, I think we won't necessarily end the way that the fossil fuel industry is using oil, but I really hope that we don't get to the time where we, and oil because there's no more um, to use. 
Danny, what, what would you pull out of this uh, and think we should emphasize or what, what are you looking at? What lens? So I think there's a lot to say. Let me, let me pick up on, on two points. Um, the first is when I think about sort of the, the costs and distributional impacts, and especially, uh, Julie, with, with respect to your question about thinking about the future, um, I spend a lot of my time around climate scientists these days, and I'm thinking about the present and what that tells us about the future. I mean, we've all lived through wildfires recently, and, and I think almost everyone in the state has had a visceral experience with that now at this point, or had a close family member or friend who has. I just spent the earlier part of this week with a coworker in Northern Washington state, watching the floodwaters uh, creep up to our house. And the port of Vancouver is now isolated because many of the highway systems in British Columbia have collapsed as a result of an atmospheric river that's dumped torrential rains. Now, a couple of weeks ago in the Bay Area where I live, we were dancing in the streets because we got this massive rain that sort of heralded the end of fire season and the beginning, hopefully, of some, some water arriving in our state. And the same kinds of high-intensity storm systems are capable of enormous damage to infrastructure that is going to make the sticker costs of a lot of these policies, which we can and should debate, look very, very small. When we start thinking about our lives in 20 or 30 or 40 years, the question of the impacts that are coming, I think we are so unprepared uh, both for those impacts structurally and their impact on disadvantaged communities and communities of color, it's going to be an extraordinary challenge to work on. California can't solve that problem on its own, but we got to remember that is coming unless we and everyone else starts to act. And I never want to lose sight of that. So that's the first thing. Second thing to say is I think the framing of this panel, um, as, I, as I hope this discussion so far has indicated, it calls a really important question. In the climate community, people talk about net zero and goals of you know, X reductions by Y date. When you reframe the question as the end of coal or the end of oil, everything changes. And the focus becomes, I think, so much more clear with respect to a lot of the sensitivities we're going to need to talk through about supply versus demand side and how to make it affordable. Asking the question, what is the future for fossil fuels, I think cuts through a lot of the noise that's been lost in the climate conversation so far. And I think it's right to the heart of the matter, which is we cannot continue the current systems, even if we might have a, a range of views about what future systems might look like and how they might include some conventional fuels. It is crystal clear when you start asking the question, should there be fossil fuels? The answer is not like this. And that's such a different and starker framing than I think a lot of the climate conversations of the past have been. Yeah. Kath, you know, the the instruction to the state air board um, regarding this issue, evaluating, coming up with uh, a, a plan to get to zero carbon or net zero, there's so much, so much language we, we could use, um, it instructs them specifically to look at health benefits and economic benefits. And that cuts two ways. We, it, 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 there is an understanding that you can't take the legs out of a, a very important industry in California and has been for a hundred years, um, as well as not uh, impose unexpected and undue costs on people suddenly. So it's a ramp. Um, it, it, the state is taking care to look at your industry and say, look, help us. You're great innovators. It's a very sophisticated industry. And you've indicated it's very nimble. There's, there's uh, renewables that are, that, that, that are co-generation and, and parts of your industry. Um, why is it so hard? I mean, it, 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 I, I'm sure you feel under attack, but there is an inevitability both on the policy side and uh, public, uh, I mean, I'll say this and you can contest it, um, public 
interests and other in other aspects here. I mean, why is it not a workable solution? So many major international um, oil companies are involved in solar and all kinds of renewable energy, and as you say, hydrogen. So it can be done. It doesn't have to be awful, right? Yeah, and thank you, Julie, because I think you actually teed that up very well. And and actually, even the the previous all, all of the comments by by Severin and and Danny and and Alvaro, there's many things I think we all agree on uh, that that each of us say here, um, which is which is exciting, right? And and. Frankly, I've worked with the Air Resources Board, uh, you know, for as long as many people on this phone have or on the Zoom have, and they are charged with looking at options, right? Um, why are they charged with looking at options? Because it isn't easy. It is complicated. There are consequences from what option you take. You know, it's always a debate of how much too fast or how little too slow, right? It's always somewhere in that realm. And they will be doing scenarios in the scoping plan, which we are extremely engaged in. I'm sure everyone on this phone is in looking at the scenarios that they will put together, um, you know, from A to Z, I don't know, maybe four or five of them. I'm not sure yet, but they will look at the combinations of things that we can think about from where we are now to where we need to go. And those will hopefully also put on the table, how do you balance the consequences on the environment and the economy and social equity or energy equity, however we want to term it, those will be conditions of the scenarios that we all have to look at and decide because none of them are perfect. There's not one scenario that's perfect. And as we all know, every energy source, oil and gas, renewables, biofuels, solars, everything has issues. Every energy source has issues. Nothing is free of issues. Nothing is free of debate or concern. And, you know, we've got, we, we look at all those alternatives. Look at, look at solar, how the costs have come down. That's a wonderful, it's probably the cheapest power source we have now for electricity. But there's supply issues, there's inflation issues, there's issues around steel and glass and aluminum, there's labor shortages. I mean, there's, how do you store, you know, how do you store energy? How are we going to solve that? Those are all, you know, are we going to be dependent on China for all the materials that we need to move in that direction? You know, I, I, I'm saddened that we're moving away from nuclear from the standpoint of climate change, because it's, you know, super clean. Yes, it's got issues. It's got storage issues. It's got what do you do with the waste issues? Um, but, you know, the same with wind. We've got great wind sources coming online. The price is down. But you got logistical hurdles. You've got landscape problems and noise problems and wildlife problems and impacts on navigation systems. And, you know, geothermal has geology. I mean, all the things, you know, hydrogen's promising, um, but it's also pretty expensive still. And so when you see our companies and, and one of my favorite scenarios is the sky scenario that Shell puts out because it looks into the future and it asks the same questions that CARB is asking itself in the scoping plan. So why is it so difficult? Because there's a lot at stake and there's a lot of pieces to that puzzle on which path we choose. I still contend that it is a diversified portfolio. I do not think putting all our eggs in the in the electric transportation uh, bucket is a solid plan. I think the diversified plan is a much more sustainable plan to get from here to there. Will that change in the future? Absolutely. Does the sky scenario show when the uh, production and demand and supply of oil go down and hydrogen kicks up and natural gas? It all, it all does. But it's out in the future based on what we know. And then the scoping plan helps us figure out a plan 
that we can all embrace and, and start on that journey. I mean, not start on it. We're on the journey. But, you know, it, it, it's not a, to your point, Julie, why isn't it easy? Because it's not easy. If it was easy, we would have been done. We wouldn't even have this panel, right? It's not easy. There's a lot at stake and we got to do it right. And there's a lot to consider. Yeah, I, I, I guess I didn't mean to imply that it was easy. Uh, it, the idea is your industry understands the way things are going and um, both externally and has made across the board many uh, just corporate decisions about what kind of energy suppliers there will be. And I, it would, I, I'm just wondering why there is, it seems to be so difficult because it is, there is an inevitability. But Severin, I want to ask you real quick and come back to that, Kath, if you feel like you need to respond. Um, we are going to electrify this state. Um, have you, is there, does there any place in the world or in any other state or city where this future that's being envisioned uh, that doesn't rely on fossil fuels um, exists in the, in the developing world? I mean, can you... No, I mean, no, there's nothing that uh, would really model where we need to get to. Um, certainly there is France that ha is very electricity dependent and does most of its uh, buildings with electricity. Uh, but they're still using petrol for, for, pardon? And nuclear. And they do it with nuclear. That's absolutely right. Um, so, I, you know, I think there are examples of pieces of it. But there's no example of um, uh, the sort of energy transition we're talking about. And I agree with Kathy that I think complete reliance on electricity is probably not where we're going to end up or should. Uh, but it's, I think, much greater reliance on electricity is where we're going. Uh, there are parts of the economy that electrifying is just going to be incredibly challenging and we're not close to technologies for aviation and heavy industry and heavy trucking and so forth. Um, so I, I think there's a, there's a big challenge to that, but, um, the, but I think that we need to, but, you know, we, we, we can pick up examples uh, along the way from other economies, but nothing that actually puts it all together at one time. Uh, this discussion so often center on technology to the rescue. You know, we will, and it does get accelerated, as as Kath mentioned, uh, with renewables and the cost of solar. That happened largely because of subsidies, public policy emphasis, and helping that sector. Um, and then it can stand on its own two feet. That's and luck. And, and let's just be clear. Absolutely. When I was having these discussions more than a decade ago, people were saying, uh, you know, biofuels are the clear winner in transportation uh, and and solar panels can never get below two dollars a watt. Right. Uh, so the people who say that they can predict where technology is going to go in the future, I generally tune out um, because I think they generally it's very hard to predict. And I think it's why we need to be pushing not not saying that we're going to have a future with all technologies, but we're but that we're going to invest in all technologies, right? Because we're not sure which ones are going to turn out to be the most effective. And, uh, and as Kathy said, all of them will have drawbacks, nothing is free. But I think we we are getting an idea of which things are less expensive. 
in the end, we're going to have to put together a whole system that hangs together that provides us the energy services we want uh, and does it in an environmentally acceptable way and a cost acceptable way. Uh, I'm not going to pretend I know what that looks like, uh, but we certainly have a pretty good idea of what some of the constraints are. Yeah. When it comes and- to public investment, uh, there's not a lot of appetite both on, uh, from, from elected officials and also the public for a lot, letting that play out and understanding there's going to be some losers. We're going to put money into hydrogen and it's never going to work. Or, and, and people just say, what, whatever happened to all that money? So it's difficult to let that play out because there's, uh, you know, no one has the patience to allow the technology to do that. Um, Danny, you spent a lot of time taking apart public policy in this area. Um, there's, a, there's a little bit of a difference sometimes or a, a chasm sometimes between what um, experts think should in, be included in public policy and what is um, amenable for a, a, pub, a public official to call for. So when, you, when, you, when someone says we're going to ban the sale of uh, fossil fuels or cars, internal combustion cars, that's not very popular, but it might be something that's necessary. So what happens? I mean, what have you seen in California? Well, I mean, I think, you know, California exhibits, especially if, if you look back sort of globally at, at what's been going on in these these issues for the last couple of years, decades, you know, California exhibits both the, the sort of the best and the worst on that front. And I should mention, I am a full-time preacher in Severance Church of technological humility and, and agnosticism. We don't know, um, which is precisely why searching for and figuring out what works and what doesn't is so important. And I think, actually, you know, we can talk a little bit about some of this, but I, I think we have some pretty clear evidence that it's been very difficult to get carbon pricing to be the main engine of change. It's been extremely difficult. In fact, often very pernicious outcomes with carbon offsets. They have exacerbated pollution uh, burdens in environmental justice communities. They've been almost entirely dysfunctional, and California is at the forefront of that experience. At the same time, I think California has been exceptionally good at thinking about mobile source regulation and clean electricity standards, using other policy instruments to drive a conversation that provides a framework for innovation and deployment of new technologies. So, you know, I think the challenge is how do we pay better attention to what's working and, and what's not working? And to be perfectly honest, a big part of the reason that's such a big challenge is because you have incumbent industries who are firmly attached to systems that don't work and are hanging on as hard as they can, precisely because that allows us to avoid the conversation of what the future of energy should look like. Um, and I think that's a huge part of what's going on. And to Severin's point, you know, I think we do have policy failures. We do have technology failures. We've got to acknowledge that's going to be a possibility and embrace it. Uh, and we don't really have a language and a system for tracking that very carefully, which is ultimately a really nerdy conversation that needs to be integrated into a, a really a focus on equity, um, which has been missing. And I'm really glad to see that reenter the conversation as a dominant theme. Yeah, I mean, Alvaro, when, when people are discussing this, we're all not going to be able to buy Teslas. We're all not going to be able to buy even the, the least expensive electric car. Um, there's generally a, a double edge to this. There, there's employment opportunities um, and a, a, an atten- attention paid to making sure that certain communities can have the opportunity to work in these industries that of the future that will support this kind of transition. At the same time, it, it's going to cost more money. Everybody knows that our, our uh, energy costs are going to rise. Um, 
that's tough. That's tough for a lot of conservation and environmentally minded people to embrace new technology in the future we're talking about with, with less dependence on oil at understanding that costs will go up. How do you look at that? Well, I really approach this with a very big picture perspective and not silo the conversation around cost and who can afford and who can't on just energy and renewable energy at that. Um, I think that this is, I mean, let's be clear, people are not able to afford the cost right now of what we consider to be a cheap source of energy. Um, and that's, you know, partly having to do with just the way that our economic system is, is stood up. So when people ask, you know, can people afford the cost of renewable energy in the future, because renewable energy might be more expensive, I can ask like, well, could we increase people's wages, which have been stagnant, stagnant for such a long time? Should we be asking about the, 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 the take-home income that people have? When people ask about the cost of renewable energy and whether people uh, are able to, uh, to afford it, I talk about like, you know, should people who are making a lot of money right now in what for some people is an economic crisis time, uh, and should companies that are the most profitable in the world, should they be paying their fair share so that we can distribute the cost across more people? So I don't like it when folks just hone in on whether or not an individual can afford a new form of technology. I'm like, well, what are the conditions surrounding that individual that are making it very unaffordable to live, not in the future, but today, to, um, you know, in the current conditions. So I think, you know, this is going to be, um, you know, to Danny's point earlier, it's kind of an all hands on deck type of thing. And we, we can't just put it on the individual or one industry or one policy. I think we have to really take a close look at our entire economic framework and how People are able to thrive in this economy. A very small number of people are able to thrive in this economy. And a huge number of people are having a hard time meeting ends meet today. Not in the future, not in a renewable energy future, but right now. Um, and I think we have to take a hard look at that before we then go down the path of like, you know, are people more able to afford the new technologies that's to come? Um, you know, Catherine earlier today talked about intentionality, and I really agree with that. We have to be intentional about how we lay the foundation for the future economic system that we are working under. And if we're going to be intentional, and if we're going to be serious about equity, we have to look at who's bearing the bigger cost today of the way that our economy is fueled. Um, and that's black and brown people throughout this state. That's where the industry is. That's where the concentration of pollution exists. That's where the most amount of poverty exists as well. And this is what I mean by we have to make a hard pivot. These folks have been living under these conditions for a very long time. So in some ways, we've made the calculation, the policy calculation, that we're okay with these communities being where the concentration of poverty and pollution exists. And that the slower our transition away from this current fossil fuel economy uh, continues, that those communities will continue to ex um, you know, uh, have the most amount of burden placed on them. So from my work and from what I do, we have to make that pivot today as quickly as possible, as hard as possible, so that we don't allow that legacy of injustice to continue to exist. Um, and you know, we talked about 
we already know which, which uh, we're already starting to see which energy sources are mo more costly. And I would say, and we already know which ones are most harmful and we have to really move away from those as quickly as we can. Can I ask a question? And Alvaro, your comments raised this real tension for me. You know, if we look back over the U.S. economy over the last 50 or 60 years, it's become less and less equitable. Uh, top tax rates have fallen. Corporate tax rates have fallen. Um, certainly since Reagan declaring government is the problem, um, we've seen just much greater um, inequality of income and wealth. And I, you know, I'm with you entirely on we have to fix that and that that is a fundamental piece. But at the same time, I worry we're, that if we don't, if we wait to fix that before we start addressing climate change, uh, we're going to take down the whole planet. And so I've sort of, and this has been a change in some ways, what you're saying is what I was saying five or 10 years ago that, you know, we need to solve the whole problem. But I've sort of said, okay, let's do things in energy now and offset the effects of those things, particularly for uh, disadvantaged and black and brown communities and recognize that we're not going to solve the whole thing right now. And so in some ways, I've moved to the side of, um, you know, we got to solve this problem and make sure it does no harm in the process. How do you, how should we balance those things? I, I and I ask that genuinely. I just don't know. Yeah, I often hear this in a lot uh, when I I speak about these issues a lot, and I just want to be clear. I'm not saying we should not move as fast as we can to try to create um, an energy sector that is less polluting and, and better for the planet. Um, I think what I'm saying is that we have to move forward with urgency around addressing the racial injustices that exist in our systems. And then we have to also at the same time move intentionally, but with patience around the strategies that we're gonna be deploying. Both you and Danny talked about, you know, there's gonna be technologies that are not gonna pan out and there are gonna be, you know, missteps along the way. And I think what we, what I often call for is to do, to, to um, develop the technologies and develop our strategies um, with the urgency around trying to address these injustices, but still allowing for some of the intentionality and, and, and for the practice to develop um, in order to know what's going to work and what isn't. So in some ways, I'm saying we have to do all of it. It has to be all done at the same time. My worry sometimes when we lean in too much on developing the sector strategy, the energy sector strategy, is that we leave out the urgency around addressing racial injustice. Yeah. And that then just becomes the after, we'll get that to it later. And that's what creates the exacerbation of burdens or creating new burdens, because we were not focused on how to not replicate the same practices that got us to this place in the first place. So I'm with you. We have to you know, speed towards saving the planet, but my addition is let's have a keen eye towards not replicating the injustices of the past. And when, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, when I was listening to Alvaro and, and Danny and, and, and Sever talk about the systems approach, I, I totally agree with that. And, and one thing, and I'd, I'd be curious, the comments of the other panel members, I do watch what goes on 
in the world as a result of things that are happening and ask myself, is that, a, is that an indication that our plan is solid, that we, we know where we're going and it's working, or is it an indication that we haven't thought enough about it because there's some real things that are happening? And one of those that bothers me tremendously is when, you know, when President Biden asks OPEC and Russia to produce more crude oil and ship it to the United States. That to me is not an indication because because energy is too high and we need more. We need we need more of it. Right. And so that that to me says, okay, something we haven't thought about. The other one that really kind of took me back is is when you know we've worked very hard with the Air Resources Board and we're still working hard on making sure that tankers in port, especially Port of LA and Long Beach, are you know not sitting there idling and they are plugging in to shore power so that those emissions are, are so much less and the communities around them are, are less impacted. And yet when we found ourselves in a system in California where we didn't have the electricity we needed, the governor issued a, an, an executive order to unplug those tankers and go back to the way we were. So I look at those things and I think to myself, okay, something in our plan, something in our thinking was not enough to make sure we can do this right. And so that, that's, that's what I, I mean, that's why I like the systems approach, because I really think we've got to think about how do we get from A to Z and what does that look like so that we don't have things like those two examples. And there's probably 15 others I could cite, because that doesn't, that doesn't say to me that our plan was, was all that great. Uh, I think it's the complete opposite take on that. I think those are both situations where I think if you recognize the gravity of, of the changes that are required to address the climate crisis and the equity crisis we have in this state and in this nation, um, the, the scale of the change is really vast and it requires moving vastly capital-intensive industries in different directions with technological risk. You do not turn that ship on a dime. And especially in a moment of crisis, I mean, would you have the governor say, no, let's keep the ships plugged in and risk a blackout? I think no, that's I'd have the governor do a plan where we wouldn't have that question in the first place. <laughs> and, and I think the that's response I mean. to that, the response, Kelly, again, again, I think that's not a particularly honest example because you have to invest in the new systems you want and they don't appear overnight. And the, the criticism that there isn't an immaculate strategy here when you've been talking about how hard and difficult this is going to be and how many different things need to happen just in your sector I mean, I think a realistic approach to this is that any serious policymaker has to have capacity to pivot and to navigate uncharted waters, including the fact that everybody's yammering about gas prices to avoid taking action on these things. And the idea that you would want to manage that in a transition plan is a very sensible thing. The idea that you would want to manage grid reliability in a grid emergency, even though in the long run, we know we need to get those ships onto electrification as often as possible and hopefully all of the time, those are sensible policy strategies, not evidence of failure. I think we'd probably disagree on that point, Danny, because I, I do think that there is a way. And, and why do we do the scenario analysis that we're doing at CARB? Exactly for that reason. So I, I just think that's, we may have many common things we agree with on this call, but that's probably not one of them. Well, I'm going to agree with both of you in a way, uh, which is, and disagree. Um, you know, the, the example of plugging in uh, the ships and unplugging them. I think the reality is that the planning process in California did not keep up with climate change and with the transition. And so there we were, and it was exactly the right choice at that time. Um, I do want to point out that the 
emissions from that plugging in or unplugging were trivial compared to the emissions in the state as a whole. Um, but at the same time, the emissions from, from once through cooling plants are pretty darn small. And yet we're getting all worked up about that as well. Most of those once through cooling plants that are being uh, pushed to retire uh, more rapidly than they probably should, um, are most of them are running at two to 5% capacity factors. They hardly ever run. Uh, but they're there for those super peak times, and we need them for a little while longer. So I think we need to be realistic about the transition. Uh, and we need to recognize that sometimes things are going to be uh, require, you know, less than perfect uh, side trips along the way. The gasoline price thing is I continue to be flummoxed by uh, gas prices are not at an all-time high adjusted for inflation. In fact, they're not even at a particularly high level adjusted for median income. Uh, but it gets people are just incredibly focused on gasoline prices compared to housing prices and all the other things that are much more impactful to their uh, standard of living. Yeah, I hear mostly, sir, on a lot of the conversations, just, you know, everything going up. Every, I mean, it's it's not even focused at one single thing. It's 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 concern about everything. <laughs> Wages don't seem to go up, except um, that one, Alvaro. <laughs> and I mean, I think you know, the costs. I, I, I the thing that really uh, keeps me up at night is that um, the burden that people are already feeling because of the way that our economy runs. We know where that's happening. That's in low-income communities of color, particularly during this pandemic crisis. Women of color-led households have been the most impacted by the economic crisis that's occurred, um, and the you know the length of the transition and the need to continue to rely on fossil fuels to run our economy continues to place the burden most pronounced there. And I think to me, it's like how do we allow to allow that to con just to continue? If out of necessity, we would have to, you know, extend the life of these uh, of fossil fuels, um, we need to do better at being able to help folks not just have to be exposed to the pollution that is being generated from the sector. Um, and it's almost as though that's been an externality that is just, we're okay with. Uh, and that, and I'm not okay with that. And I think that you know some of what uh, environmental justice advocates have been calling for seems incredibly reasonable to me. To use Danny's word, like the setback, um, you know, policy that, that has just been approved. <laughs> why, why did it take this long to make a, a conscious choice to say, yeah, someone's bedroom shouldn't be next to an oil rig? Um, and it took this long. And I think to me that's. That's where the urgency around racial justice doesn't seem to be there all the time around what we're doing with uh, a fossil fuel economy. Because if we had more urgency about addressing racial justice, we would have taken that step a long time ago and not had waited this long for that to occur. I wanna pick up on uh, what you've all been talking about with the, the connection between 
the fossil fuel industry and the economy and what we learn from the pandemic because they're, and, and before I say that, I'd really, we'd, we'd all love to hear some audience questions. So put them in the chat and we can address them. Um, there was, uh, in the last two years, there's been a decrease in demand for oil. And, and I'm wondering if anyone can play that out since we're trying to project what the future might look like, the just the the connection between economic progress, the 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 engine of an economy, and the reliance on this kind of of energy source, and and what we might see in in that regard. I think the transition is going to be very bumpy. And one of my favorite examples, if folks if remember, in the early days of the shutdown last year, I mean, we had you know, frankly, the oil industry was trying to give away gasoline. But diesel was much differently priced because we had still had a lot of heavy trucks using these services. We've built a very carefully designed fossil fuel infrastructure around a stable set of demands that I don't think are stable, both because we don't want that as a policy choice and because technology is changing on the demand side. I mean, you can say what you want about electric vehicles, and it's, it's fun to pick on luxury cars as status symbols, but EVs are going to be cheap in the not too distant future. They're going to be affordable like regular cars. I think there's a high likelihood of that technology pathway following the path of renewables. Um, it is showing all of the signs of that from a medium-term perspective. And I think what we have to remember is that these little changes, um, you know, the, the, as much of a complete interruption in our lives as the pandemic has been, it didn't really fundamentally change the energy system. It was a blip. Um, but it also illustrated the fragility of the energy system because folks had a really hard time dealing with a modest shift in the composition of product that needed to be sold. It's going to be a bumpy ride in the conventional industry. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, I don't disagree with Danny. I mean, I think, you know, EVs over time will come down. We're seeing it in every, any, every form of energy. And, and I don't look at that as a, as, as something negative. I think it's extremely positive. I mean, we're still not anywhere where we need to go and the gap is still big. I think we have, well, last time I looked, we had probably, maybe we're getting close to 800,000 EVs now, um, you know, but we still got 36 million internal combustion engines. And so we got it. That's a gap that's there. It's real. It's not, you know, it's not fictitious. Right. And so how do we, how do we get from A to B so that, and the fact that we look at consume, what consumers are buying, you know, that's part of the, the issue I, I mentioned before. So, um, coming out of the pandemic, demand is is up. You know, will it be up as much as it ever was? Probably not. Will it be transitioning to something different? Probably will. Um, certainly will. So, you know, I do think it it's going to be a bumpy road until we figure it out. And I don't think we have figured it out. Sarah, I'll actually you- say that I, I think oil demand has not peaked globally. Um, I think we are seeing every sign that the world is going to continue for the near term to grow its oil demand. And it won't shock me if that's true in the US either, because while it is true, EVs are getting some traction, it is also true that public transit took a huge hit in the pandemic, and it has not come close to uh, back to where it was. And if you look at the Bay Area freeways, it's becoming evident that as we go back to going to the office, uh, the traffic is very likely to be worse than it was before the pandemic because so many fewer people are willing to get on public transit now. And if I could just jump in on that last point, something that was uh, really interesting to me is that 
you know, while um, a lot of people were able to continue to work from home, I was one of them, I'm in my house right now, um, you know, uh, at the peak of the pandemic, uh, a lot of people were not going into the office, they were staying home, and we were productive. If anything, I've seen in my own organization, we've been the most productive that we've ever been, because we were just avoiding the commute cost. However, a lot of low-income people who had to go to do service jobs, they were in a bind. And the reduction of service of public transit really hurt them. And now the perception that that's unsafe was, is really difficult for them to come back. So to Severin's point, I think earlier, is really about the reduction of the demand. And if we were able to actually invest a lot more in public transit services to allow those commuters to go to work and be able to service by them, a lot of people I think are gonna have a hybrid work situation um, because now we know that for a lot of us, we're able to continue to perform our duties from our home and not have to necessarily commute to work. Um, let's take a question that, that someone has asked um, and, and Kathy touched on it. We've touched on the idea that um, it's we, we're looking at automobiles, but we're talking about trucking, shipping, uh, air, air travel. And the question is realistic transition plan. What do we do about essential industries like air traffic that currently has no clean energy alternative? That's a, we talk about ramps, that's, a, that's enormous. So what, what does everybody see in, in that regard? Is that the, the heavier lift in this transition? Well, we, got, we haven't got to electric planes yet, but we have got to um, renewable aviation fuel. You know, so that that's big. That's a big. Yeah, but it's very expensive still. Well, I wasn't talking cost, mm -hmm, ever. Mm -hmm, I just talked yeah, possibility. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> We're supposed to invest in everything, right? Yeah. So, no, no, that's right. Aside. I agree. And we, we need to. And it's very uh, encouraging to see the airlines even if there's probably a bit of greenwashing to it, um, out there trying these things and doing, you know, there was a period in sort of past now where every month a different airline would announce a new uh, biofuel or renewable fuel flight uh, milestone that they've hit. And that's great. Um, but I think realistically, it's going to be a heavy lift to get, air travel in particular um, off of fossil fuels. Yeah, and Severin, I'm not as familiar with, um, with rail. You have any views there? I'm not either, but my impression is that rail is actually much more electrifiable than air transport is, and possibly more than, uh, yeah, probably more than heavy trucking too. Mm -hmm. um, heavy trucking is also a big challenge. It is, and and recon and that would require reconfiguring highways and allowing areas where they could do their battery re either swap out or recharging. It it the infrastructure to support this is something that we we probably shouldn't overlook. Here's another question. Um, it it's a bit of what you were mentioning, Alvaro. The the idea that the state just uh, passed a law that, in, that required setbacks. There's so much energy uh, infrastructure in California that's, that's a legacy. There are many communities that have refineries and actual uh, pump jacks across the street from schools and things like that. Uh, and the question is, 
um, where those energy facilities were there before the residential buildings, do you, do you, the panelists, think the government should be responsible for developing public-private partnerships for, for providing new housing? Uh, in other words, relocating people. How should how how do you handle that? Uh, again, another transition. Do we transition the people away from those facilities, or do you, do you phase out the facilities? Yeah, that's a. I mean, it, it's it's a great question, Julie, and and I and I think it's it's. You know, the planning process, um, you know, I, want, I don't particularly like to point fingers, but it's not like the refineries and the oil production facilities built up to the fence lines of communities, right? I mean, they were there a long time before communities and, and, and planning, city planning was allowed to build up to the fence lines. So now we find ourselves in this situation and what are we going to do about it? Um, and so that that to me is, you know, it, the situation is what it is. Whoever got there first, whoever, you know, it doesn't really matter because it's a situation we've got to deal with. It's a zoning problem. Um, yeah. well, it's a zoning problem, but it has a deep legacy of racial injustice in terms of redlining, racial covenants, and where people of color were allowed to live. Uh, the reason why these places um, are places where industry has located is because it was easier, um, you know, less political capital, less opposition to their um, to their investments, and uh, an ability for people to be able to, you know, um, locate their businesses there. And for low low income people of color, sometimes these communities were the only places that they could actually be able to like afford a home or build a home. So I think it's all intermingled in terms of how government, the private sector, uh, and industry has, you know, created these, um, you know, communities that are really unhealthy for people. Directly to the question, I mean, we all know that in California, we do need to develop more housing options that are affordable in high opportunity areas. And again, this is going back to linking it to racial covenants and redlining, where a lot of these high opportunity areas do not want to build housing to allow more people to come to live where they are. Um, and I think that that's a government problem. We do need to encourage that kind of development in high opportunity areas so that low income people are not just relegated to having to live where industry is currently located. Um, but I don't know that it's just a, um, like it's not a scrap and replace kind of situation where we're going to transition everyone away from these communities. I think we need to mitigate the pollution that those communities are currently um, faced with. Yeah, I mean, I, I just to pick up on something Severin said, we, and we have an affordability crisis, and a lot of it is a housing crisis, and we're not going to make progress on a lot of these fronts if we don't address that front and center. Uh, and I think those cost burdens are often much bigger than the the cost burdens associated with energy transition. So I, I do want to take a step back. And Alvaro, to your point, I mean, however folks got there, um, I want to make sure there's enough housing that people can choose where they want to live. And I also want to make sure that the people who are impacted currently have a voice in what their lives are like. And I know you know that, you believe that too, but I, you know, I just find it a little troubling that like, there's like sacrifice zones. That that's still part of the conversation. I, I, again, I didn't hear that from you in the slightest, just that's where we are, right? I mean, if you drive through these historically red line neighborhoods, I live near a couple of them. It is a completely different way of life. And I am not comfortable with conversations that say, well, it's just where the infrastructure is. So, you know, we'll wait a couple of decades until we can figure out if, if planes will have cheap fuels. Um, that's not any way to solve this problem. The way is to confront the affordability crisis directly and housing is one of the, the most important pieces of that. Right. I think everyone has seen how complex this this issue is just by 
you know, the glancing blows on, on all the topics that we've covered here. And uh, everyone needs to stay tuned to see what, how the state planning goes through. And it's time to go. And we really appreciate the time of the panelists. It's been very enlightening. We're very happy to have everybody online watching. And we thank you for your time today. Thank, thank you. you. Julie and all of our panelists, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Uh, that was a really fascinating discussion. I feel like I learned a lot. And we will get this put together as a video and also as a podcast. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.